From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. So, um, I have a little confession to make. It's not a little confession, it's a big confession. It's finally saying prevention of a disease and treatment of a disease are different things. And I'm looking at three what I consider very foolish-looking politicians at the end of a rope. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, how knitting can help your mental health and maybe kickstart your fashion career. Is your car worth more now than when you bought it? And commemorating anti-fascism or celebrating attempted assassination? A plaque for Violet Gibson goes up in Dublin. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's already working on its Bavarian twisted stitches. Whatever they are. Brendan Courtney is in the chair for Ryan Tuberty all this week and he dove straight into the musings on the news or newsings, if you will. And the story of Ireland's nightlife, apparently, finally about to catch up with the latter stages of the 20th century. Uh, Minister Helen McEntee is driving a change in our licensing laws for our pubs and clubs. I think this is a great thing. So pubs, obviously, as we just heard, will stay open till 12.30 and nightclubs till 6am. It means it's our choice when we go out because I think we have been spilling onto the streets at the end of a night en masse Uh, for the last 200 years which is how how old our licensing laws are so they do need to be updated but uh, like many of you I think if you're on holiday in Europe I was in Greece there in August we were always first in the restaurant at like 7 o'clock and they thought we were crazy because people don't go out for dinner until 9 and 10 because they choose so there's much better ebb and flow in and out of of, um, venues so I I think it's a really really good thing but people like me of my generation we're going to have to start to slightly change how we socialise and start having dinner at 9 and 10 o'clock but at least it'll be our choice and we can dance till 6am. Not like that hasn't happened before. I'm exhausted just thinking about it. But now on to some sad celeb news. In really sad news, and I particularly am touched by um, this human, actor Leslie Jordan, probably most famous for playing Karen Walker's nemesis, Beverly Leslie. Do you remember Beverly Leslie? In the massive US comedy Will and Grace. Well, he was in a car accident yesterday. They believe, reading the reports, uh, that he possibly had a medical emergency behind the wheel at 67 years of age and he died on the scene. I absolutely love Beverly Leslie and I'm sure lots of people do. But like his other 5.8 million Instagram followers, I really fell in love with the actor Leslie Jordan during lockdown. He really came into his own, so much so that actually Vanity Fair have quoted saying that Leslie raised the spirits of America during the darkest times. He was truly wonderful. Here he is sparring with Karen. Karen Walker. I thought I smelled gin and regret. just breaks my heart that you don't have a partner for the spotlight dance. Such a pity a bottle of rum can't waltz. Actually, I do have a date. Yes, I was just on my way to meet him by the punch bowl. Or, as you would call it, the swimming hole. Now, uh, God rest his soul, actor Leslie Jordan, only 67, gone way too soon and brought so much joy to so many people. And honestly, his Instagram explains exactly what happens. And apparently he's a big project coming up, so it'd be great to see what happens. Brendan celebrating the actor Leslie Jordan, who died recently. But for every good celeb in show business, there's a not so good celeb in show business. Hot off the press, 
James Corden, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a frog in my throat this morning. James Corden opened his TV show last night. He was a week off, so that's why he didn't make any announcement, with an apology. So if you don't know anything about this, here's a quick update. The owner of super trendy Baltasar restaurant in New York, it's a really nice fancy restaurant, lots of celebrities go there apparently, tweeted last week that Corden was banned from the restaurant for being rude to his servers twice. Uh, he actually had examples from the management log and he tweeted the, what James Corden did. You can find them online pretty easily. They're, they're, they're not too outrageous, but they are definitely rude. But the story went viral, totally took legs of its own. Anyway, last night, basically, Corden explained his wife was given food she's allergic to. He made a sarcastic comment should he go in and cook it himself. But what I think is clever is he brought his parents to the audience of The Late Late Show and he, he, he sort of thanks his father for making him see sense. Here's a clip of what he said. Things are going to get written about me. Never complain, never explain. It's very much my motto. But as my dad pointed out to me on Saturday, he said, son, well, you did complain, so you might need to explain. When you make a mistake, you've got to take responsibility. So I thought I would, if it's okay, I, I would share with you what happened. So a couple of weeks ago, I was in New York. We went for breakfast at one of my absolute favourite restaurants. It's a place called... Balthazar. We sit down, we ordered, and my wife explained uh, that, that she has a, a serious food allergy. So when everybody's meals came, my wife was given the food that she was allergic to. But no worries, we sent it back, all was good. As her meal came wrong to the table the third time, in the heat of the moment, I made a sarcastic, rude comment, cooking it myself. And it is a comment I deeply regret. Like, I understand the difficulties of being a server. I worked shifts at restaurants for years. I have such respect and I value anyone that does such a job. But here's the truth of it, right? Because I didn't shout, I didn't call anyone names or use derogatory language, I've been walking around thinking that I hadn't done anything wrong. But the truth is, like I have, I made a rude comment and it was wrong. It was, it was an unnecessary comment. It was ungracious. Well... So blame your wife, James. <laughs> it was her allergy that actually caused me to be completely rude in the restaurant. I don't know. I'm not buying it. I mean, at least he has addressed it. And it is a very first world problem. But here's the thing. My best friend was a waiter for years and often said to me, your waiter decides whether or not you have a good night or a bad night. Always be polite to your waiter. They are a human too. So I think it's a lesson for all of us because you will get caught in social media. Sometimes, sometimes has really good benefits like that. Don't be a D-bag. Well, that seems to be the executive summary, really, doesn't it? Anyway, it's not strictly newsings per se, but we do like a bit of an unexpected confession on Playback Daily. So let's take a listen to Brendan fessing up this morning. It's not a little confession, it's a big confession. So if you follow me on Instagram, and not that a lot of people do or anything like that, but if you know anything about me, you'll know that I absolutely adore my Jack Russell, Nancy Drew. I have her seven and a half years and... Um, Bless me, listeners, for I have sinned. Just after I got her, about three months after I got her, I gave her away. And I wanted to tell this story because I couldn't cope. I had just, I was living, I was living on my own. I had gotten the dog because my best friend actually pitched the idea of him getting her brother, Sid, and I got Nancy, Nancy Drew, as she's called. Got the dog, the dog arrived, and I just couldn't cope. And I was complaining so much about how much I couldn't cope. My friend Gráinne at the time said, look, she even knew this person who worked at the ISPCA who was looking for a little companion for her dog. So I put Nancy in the car and I drove over to this lovely girl's house to drop Nancy off, gave her a bag of all her stuff, her little toys and her food, and gave her away. 
got into my car and burst into tears. I, I, it was really weird. Her little paws had gotten into my heart. So I, I drove off and said, grow up now. You can't cope. It's too difficult. And about six hours later, I, I just couldn't do it. And I drove back and I took her back. So thank God I had the presence of mind because she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. If only I'd known Dogs Trust actually will step in and support owners to keep their puppies. So there is help re- out there. If you're struggling with the dog that you got during the panic, pandemic, visit dogstrust.ie and they will help. There is a tsunami of unwanted dogs landing in dog shelters at the moment. Fiona Gamble of the Wicklow Animal Shelter has said it's the worst they've ever experienced. She's calling it collateral damage of the COVID puppy boom. So apart from families who bought dogs that can't cope, there's also puppy farms that have bred dogs for sale but are no longer wanted so there's literally a deluge of thousands of unwanted dogs across the country so first of all I would say if you're thinking about buying a designer puppy please reconsider because there are thousands of unwanted dogs I absolutely love dogs plus if you're struggling with bad and the dog has bad behaviour the last thing Dog Trust tells us to do is to shame owners it is difficult it's different to when we were kids reach out to support at dogstrust.ie honestly uh, they really will help That's my plea for our canine friends. From confession to support for dogs in one neat two-minute piece. That'll do it for the newsings from this morning's Ryan Tuberty Show, courtesy of Brendan Courtney. New guidelines for the treatment of obesity are being launched today. And on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Claire spoke to Susie Burney, Executive Director for the Irish Coalition for People Living with Obesity, and Professor Donal O'Shea, HSE Clinical Lead for Obesity and Consultant Endocrinologist. So Donal, let's talk about the new guidelines first. How will they change things for people who are living with obesity? So this is a big step because it's finally saying prevention of a disease and treatment of a disease are different things. So you mentioned, uh, you know, where is the line between prevention and treatment? So we prevent obesity from happening by having uh, healthier lifestyles, by having um, good stress management, by working on our sleep. Uh, you can't influence your genes. You can't market. And they're the drivers of obesity. Uh, when, when you have yeah. obesity, mm-hmm. then... Uh, you need that managed as the chronic disease that we know it is. So that's to take away the stigma around people who are living with obesity. Yeah, I mean, there is a societal stigma. There is a stigma within the medical profession. And Susie will talk to this. There is stigma from the individuals who have obesity themselves because they think because of the narrative, it's all about eat less and move more. uh, They feel self-blame. Why don't I just change? Mm -hmm. But we know from all the studies that have been done, that you cannot treat obesity by eat less, move more. Mm -hmm. You need to treat it in a holistic way that incorporates, um, you know, a good psychological approach, looks at the drivers of obesity and then uses the treatments that thankfully we are now getting for the disease of obesity. Is there also an acknowledgement in this that you can't treat obesity by blaming somebody and saying, well, now you must have eaten too much of the wrong foods and sat down for most of the last five, ten years? Yeah, I mean, honestly, that narrative, uh, the couch potato narrative, drains the energy out of people living with obesity and people who are treating obesity. So if you take uh, any other disease, um, you know, individuals who had haemophilia and got HIV were being called haemophiliac and people were, the stigma was massive. Uh, people with HIV, the same. Uh, 
if you have a disease, that disease needs treatment. And I'm just going to say skin cancer due to too much sun exposure mm-hmm. for your genes is treated with surgery and drug therapy. And of course, we ask somebody uh, who has skin cancer to uh, put on sunscreen and wear a hat. Th- because ongoing effort around prevention is an important part of treatment, but it's not the treatment. You've touched on something interesting there. So you might lie out in the sun with nose protection on and not develop skin cancer. I could do that and develop skin cancer. Is it the same with the disease of obesity? Exactly the same. So too much energy from the environment for your genes and you will trend up in weight. And if you're in that perfect storm of a decade in your 20s to 30s, and that's where people put on the most weight because... They have kids, get a car, stop competitive sport. Suddenly you can be a couple of stone up. And uh, there are people eating 1800 kilocalories a day who are attending our obesity service and not losing weight. And there are people at home eating 2400 calories a day and not putting weight on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Susie, thank you very much for joining us. What does it mean to you to hear this this morning? Oh, I'm, I'm excited and thanks for having us on today. Um, it's an important topic. I think this is a pivotal moment um, for obesity care. I think these guidelines are going to direct us out of the silo approach, which has been often happening. I think they, they highlight the need for the, the multidisciplinary team approach. Um, I think mostly they highlight that when we work together, all the different departments, that more effective change is going to happen. But I think it's that they're written in a language that everybody can understand. Uh, people living with obesity themselves can read and understand the guidelines. And I think they're going to learn how important it is that we move away from BMI, which is a highlight of the guidelines. Um, and I, I think they're going to address stigma, which as Donald just has mentioned, yeah, is I, really I, important. And stigma for people living with obesity, uh, when they see their healthcare worker, be that a GP or anyone else working in healthcare, you say that there are statistics out there that show it takes about six years for a conversation to happen between patient and doctor about obesity. Yeah. I think and that's when we say a conversation, a real conversation, because quite often people living with obesity, they, they, in our support groups, they, they really um, experience of going in, say, with an earache. And a GP can say, well, you know, you're, you, you need to tackle your weight. And that's not the time that they can deal with that because they're in pain with, their near, with an earache and they feel judged that everything is about their weight. But then you have, there's times where they do want to speak about their weight and they don't know how to raise the topic because they've been stigmatised maybe with a different healthcare provider. And we have loads of instances of that. People like going for scans and being told, oh, why didn't you tell us you don't fit in the scanning machine? Sure, how would a person know they don't fit in the scanning machine? But it sets them in a corridor full of people waiting and they don't go back for appointments. So this is why we have to tackle um, Mm -hmm. stigma. And unless more people living with obesity and the challenges it brings every day share their stories, people won't really understand what they're going through because we hide it. We don't want to worry family. We don't want to worry people around us. So we, we kind of tend to withdraw into ourselves and not explain what we're going through. But unless we do that, well, then society even isn't going to make change. And I have to say, the fact that the media are putting a positive um, spin on this and, and tackling it and in a positive way is absolutely phenomenal because we all play a part, not just healthcare mm-hmm. providers, not just us sharing our stories. We all have to tackle stigma. Okay. Tackling the stigma which is perpetuated by people who work in the medical profession, Donald, how is that done? Because at the moment, how much training is there for people who are in medical school, for example, when it comes to dealing with the d- disease of obesity? 
Yeah, so there isn't enough training and uh, there, there are plans now that all undergraduate uh, trainees across all health disciplines uh, will be trained in how to raise the issue of obesity in a sensitive manner and then how to signpost individuals who are living with obesity and want to address it to the, the necessary kind of supports. And there's a Making Every Contact Count program, which is a an education program for uh, healthcare professionals uh, that has a module in it on overweight and obesity. Mm-hmm. So that's absolutely critical. That's Susie Burney, Executive Director for the Irish Coalition for People Living with Obesity, and Professor Donald O'Shea, HSE Clinical Lead for Obesity and Consultant Endocrinologist. They were talking to Claire Byrne about new guidelines for the treatment of obesity. Now, this Friday, the 2022 Puka Festival kicks off in Trim Castle, County Meath. The festival celebrates all things Halloween and the Celtic New Year. On this afternoon's show, Ray Darcy spoke to Friday's Puka Festival headliner, Imelda May. It's the second year and... um it's mad that nobody's done it before, really, if you think about it. It's a no-brainer, a Halloween festival in Ireland. It's, and I spend my, I spend all of my time travelling around the world trying to explain to people that Halloween is not an American <laughs> festival. It's an Irish festival. So it, it makes sense to have it, you know. Yeah. So it's going to be a celebration of Samhain, our ancient Celtic pagan um, ancestral celebration. And um, when the the veil between our world and the other world is thinned hey. just for a small <laughs> period of time and we have a chance to leave behind old ways and have a rebirth. So that's what we're doing and we're going to have loads of fun. It's going, uh, I'm on and I've just this second asked um, a wonderful Dublin band, a Liberties band called Hawk to open up for me. So they've just said a big yes. Oh, so they're going to be on before me. Um and yeah, there's, there's Lisa Hannigan is on and um, uh, Jerry I'm, Fish and the circus. I'm just looking, I'm just looking here and there's, and there's, there's comedy bad. as well. Uh, Jason Bourne's yeah. there, David O'Doherty, Joanne McNally. Like it's, it's, it's a big festival. It's a big festival. Um, it's a big, yes. it's going to be a May. It's going to be, there's going to be spectacles. I'm, I'm bringing a gang with me. Um, <laughs> right. if, whether I was playing that or not, I'd be certainly going to it anyway. So, And you're going to yeah. stay on for the weekend, Imelda? I'll stay on for as much as I can. Yeah. <laughs> Very diplomatic answer. <laughs> yes. As much as I can. No, I'll stay on for a couple of days. Yeah, I, yeah. I wish I could do the whole thing. You're very busy. Um, so um, acting is taking a, a bigger and bigger role in your life. Excuse the pun. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so I was looking at the, the trailer for Fisherman's Friend. Um, yeah. So that was a sequel, was it? To Kind of, yeah. yeah. I mean, you don't have to watch the first one to, to, yeah, to, to get, get the it. second yeah, one, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was a, just a gorgeous movie, and I got to go to Cornwall and stay there for six weeks and be immersed in the lovely community and make friends and and pretend to be somebody else for a while. And <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it. it Aubrey Flynn, really, really Aubrey Flynn, Aubrey Flynn. Yeah, yeah. It was a wonderful experience, and uh, and I'm going to I'm I'm going to do I'm starting preparations for another movie in January. Right. So, so you have a few the bug. Other little things. You have the bug. I have the bug. Ray, I'm a storyteller. I'm into stories, really. Yeah. You know, whether it be songwriting or poetry or acting, it's, it's, I'm an L Shanaki. It's, it's, it's just about telling stories, isn't it? And connecting in that way. 
That's, yeah, but, but there's, I suppose there's a huge difference. And we've talked about the experience of performing in front of a live audience, which was taken away during the lockdown. But And, and how much yeah. you get from that. So it's different yeah. when you're on set in Cornwall or whatever. And there's 15 people behind the camera and the director calls action and it's you and James Purefoy there and you have to yes. do the scene. It's completely different, isn't it? You call on a completely it's, different skill set. It's totally. Yeah. yeah, it's very, very different. But it wasn't too difficult to pretend. I had to pretend I, to, I, to, I was falling in love with James Purefoy. I mean, that's not the, the, <laughs> it's not the most difficult day's work I've ever done. It wasn't taxing. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. No, and he, and he was very charming and very... Very yeah. sweet and and very helpful as well. But uh, so it's no, a, I've, I had some good. I do you know what I was? Here's a name drop for you. I was years ago. I was on a bu- tour bus sitting talking with David Bowie, and he was talking oh to me all about embracing change and and I I do that stayed with me. You know that you have to. I always believe it's good to be a little bit uncomfortable mm. um, with what you're doing to push yourself out of your comfort zone a bit means you're kind of on the right path for artistically anyway. I think. And it's so important as well for your mental health yeah. because it just keeps the old brain yeah. ticking over, doesn't it? Keeps 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 excitement. Yeah. If you look yeah. at kids, kids kids are always doing things that they they're, they're always learning new things and doing trying new things and adventurous and. It's, it, and, and, it, I don't know, it fires me up anyway. And the other thing that they're talking about a lot now is the importance of play, even as adults. And acting, I suppose, yeah. is ul- the ultimate playing, isn't it? <laughs> totally. Yeah. And, they, and there's, there's no uh, wasted time is never time wasted, you know? Go on. It's oh, yes, right. Okay. So Wasting time is never, if you think about it, yeah. when you know those things that you do when you're wasting time, they're your memories mostly. Mm. If you think of all the memories you have, it's not all the things that you, you you did on your list that you needed to do. It was the chatting or the messing or, yeah. you know, rolling around messing with your kids or, you know, it was always the laughing is always yeah. is the time you're wasting. So. Running down the and embankment of a railway. That's what we used it's to do. It's always the things, <laughs> it's the messing that you yeah, remember. Yeah, and, yeah. and speaking of which, actually, um, uh, I'm going to the opening of um, Pat Inglesby's uh, documentaries coming right, out. Yeah. The peculiar sensation of being Pat Inglesby. And um, he's just such a phenomenal poet. And I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of his for many years. And he's very much, if you read his stuff and his short stories, very much into playing and messing. And there's a child in him that I love. And when I write me poetry, he's definitely been an influence on me with me. Po- oh, my audio book is out yes, uh, this week yes. me, of me poetry. Yes. God, I didn't mean to do that. That was a good link. <laughs> that was a good link. <laughs> I'll just leave you off there. Have you got your notes? <laughs> I'll go to Lou. I'll be back in a sec. I was talking about Pat. Um, yeah. He's such a, he's, he's who, such a treasure. Are you, are you doing the poems yourself? In my audio book? Yeah. Oh God, yeah. Yeah, of course, sir. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but some people yeah. give, give their audiobooks over to other people, but I can't imagine you doing that. Oh God, no, no. Yeah. no. And I, I, I've been waiting on this to come out. I did it last year, yeah. And I've been waiting on it to come out. I don't know what took so long, but I'm excited. I'm hoping people enjoy it. I mean, we'll, we'll see. I'm yeah. looking forward to seeing what happens. So say we all. That's Imelda May talking to Ray Darcy about her new audiobook of poetry and about the Puka Festival in Trim County Meath that kicks off this Friday. The comedian, actor and Instagram star Michael Fry, not his real name, joined, Bri- joined Brendan Courtney this morning to talk about his part in the new Credum Onath Gwelga Learning Initiative. So, okay, now we're here to talk about Credum Credum Onith. Mm -hmm. So Credum 
on it, which isn't the hard, easiest thing to say, right, is means I believe in you. Yes. It's very sweet, actually, as an idea. So yeah, first yeah, of all, yeah. what is it? Okay, so it's an initiative to help people uh, learn Irish. Yes. Uh, so basically the public can go on to Forest of Gaelga and there's loads of resources there about how to learn Irish, all that kind of stuff. And basically they've chosen uh, th- three of us, so there's Marissa Carter, myself, uh, Marty Morrissey, and they paired us with the B.O.R. Egan girls. So I'm with uh, Annie and Eve Reslin and and uh, she is helping me learn Irish. So um, we have decided that I am going to do a sketch in Irish oh, wow. next month uh, which is something I've always kind of wanted to do but with Enya I'm I'm learning like a native speaker's perspective and, and how to swear and things like that in <laughs> Irish you know which is very uh, important it makes it fun and a bit more social a bit more it's not stuffy and formal and you know like school you so, know? so the idea is that people can get involved right so you yes. can go online and ask someone to mentor you mm-hmm. so funny enough walking down the corridor I bumped into Sinead New Ulacon and I said well, you're going to mentor me whether you like it or not so yeah. unbelievably I have a very turbulent relationship with Irish in yeah. that I was sent to an Irish speaking an English speaking primary school which was co-ed with my sisters all very cool and mm. relaxed in the 80s and then I was like sort of airlifted out of that and into a Christian Brothers all Irish boys school which was yeah. pretty tough actually so I kind of I learned to speak Irish by 14, 15 I was thinking through Irish I was really in the zone mm-hmm. and then I just dropped it so I think there's a lot of people like me that have kind of a foundation in it mm-hmm. is this a good idea do you think to sort of tap into getting it back because I really would like to get it back Oh yeah I mean I stopped learning Irish after secondary school because I started learning Spanish and French right. so um, yeah it kind of disappeared for me but it's all still in there it's all still in your brain and when you start listening to people and talking to people again it starts to come back and you forget how much you remember and even say reading stuff or whatever there's lots of words I recognise still and you know I'm able to hold the conversation I'm able to understand people and it's you know I, I forgot it was all in there it's all buried there somewhere you know? so, you, so do you did you always have a passion to sort of, as an adult to come back to Irish in some way um, I think yeah it, it, it kind of disappeared after secondary school I think everyone's kind of like oh I never want to do that again you know because it's, yeah. it's seen as something it gets you grades and it gets you a job all that kind of stuff Yeah. Um, but I, I started learning about kind of minority languages and stuff like that when I was in college Okay. Uh, so the likes of say Occitan or whatever in, in France or say Basque or that kind of thing yeah. and we're very lucky in that our minority language is still alive back you know? up there Occitan What's that? That is the south of France and that is, it's kind of like a mixture between French and Spanish. Okay. Um, so I, I'd be able to understand it. It's very really? similar to Catalan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've never even heard of it. It sounds like a painkiller. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've really never even heard of it. Okay. So uh, people can get involved by going to, what's the website? Tell me. Uh, Forest and Greg. No, okay, great. Yes. Now, and you can look for a mentor online and share your posts and there's a ha- the hashtag is Credim on it, which is C-R-E-D-I-M. I O N A T, and I will share that on my Instagram, and you you're all yes. over it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, people will have seen you in in holding recently. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah, that was mental. That was my first ever experience on television. So really, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, and to share it with the likes of say Conla Hill from Game of Thrones or Sean McSweeney. <laughs> so Paul just McGlynn, explain people like, uh, people don't know what this is. Holding oh, yeah, is sorry. a book by Graham Norton. <laughs> yes, which was televised um, and by uh, who made it. Uh, it's I think it's Happy Prince Productions, but it's it's ITV, ITV, uh, and Virgin Media is who is screening it. I think. And Siobhan McSweeney's in it, and you're in it. Yeah, and it was it, it very well received. So how did that come about? And I read in my notes, I was like, that never happened. Yeah, Kathy Bork messaged you on Twitter. Yes, yeah, <laughs> That's yeah, amazing. And like it was it like she suggested it to the casting team. It wasn't the other way around. So they were like, oh my god, how do you know who that is? And she was like, no, I just seen it on the internet. So let's get him. And they were like, yeah, let's do it. Isn't that brilliant um, though? 
Oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. It just shows you what the internet can do for you now. Well, you know? also, uh, you know, there's a lot of rubbish out there, but talent rises. I've always felt that, you know, talent stays the length and rises and people like Cathy Pork see talent and next of all, she gives you a tweet and next of all, you're in an, an ITV yeah. drama. <laughs> so what was it like? Oh, amazing. Like my first proper experience on television on a set and it was a huge production, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was it was kind of like summer camp. Like we just went down to lovely West Cork and I got to hang out with some very, very cool people and <laughs> I had the best time and it was, yeah, it was so much fun. Um, but yeah, really, really kind of a baptism by fire in terms of like my TV stuff. And I, I appeared on stage for the first time since I was 16 on set. Uh, so I have a song at the, at the end that I wrote for the show uh, and I had to perform that in front of 85 Extras and Polly <laughs> McLean and Connell and all these people who I really respect. So it was really, really frightening, but the best crack ever. You had, you do, had you studied drama? Had you done drama classes? I, I did it when I was in secondary school. I was like 16 and I did the Gaiety School of Acting like day course. And that, yeah, I kind of abandoned it in college though and then came back to it online, you know, but I always had stage fright, so I never touched it as an adult really you know and so you're at the end of your scene in holding and you're you have to sing a song in front of all these people yes you? yeah <laughs> you did it though i did it i did it it was really frightening yeah. uh I, the first two takes i was stiff as a board and one of the runners was like kathy wants to know are you okay and i'm like no i'm fine i'm fine <laughs> you know fair play yeah. and you've also been in dairy girls yeah, I mean, again, another mental experience. I thought holding was as mental as it could get. And Dairy Girls was one of my favourite shows before I was asked to audition. And I was delighted to have been asked to audition. I didn't think they'd actually give it to me because I'm not actually from the north. So, you know, um, another mental experience. It was crazy. And and Dairy Girls is so all over the world, you know. I, yeah. I, I, you're seeing sort of tweets and hashtags from all parts of the planet. It must be quite bizarre, is it? Oh, yeah. Seeing people being like, when is this released in Uruguay? Or you know, that kind of thing. And you're like, yeah. who's watching this, you know? Yeah. Listen, uh, is there more acting on the cards for you? I, I, I know when people follow you at Michael Fry mm-hmm. Online on Instagram, particularly and TikTok, but is there more acting? Do you think because it seems to be just coming your way gently and nicely? Yeah, I I hope so. I mean, I really really love doing it. So you know, I'm putting it out there. There's nothing um, planned at the moment. I'm going to try presenting next year. I'm doing live. I'm doing all sorts of stuff. Uh, but acting, I definitely definitely want to stay there. You know, television wise. Well, and, and staying with television, yeah. you're on the RT player at the moment. No worries if not. And it's yes. also on on RT two as well. Um, it's, congratulations. Thank it's you very much. It's a lovely ensemble. It's great. It's great to see fresh faces, new talent. How did and No Worries Have Not come about? Because you all have your own presence. The mm-hmm. seven of you, is that right? Uh, there's five, five of us. Five of us, yeah. okay. okay. Feels uh, like the seven. And then we characters. have two writers and the director and then we've guest comedians great. in as well. Yeah. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's a big big team behind everybody. Um, but yeah, I think it was just this idea to, to hoover everybody up and put us all together and see what happens. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I had a really nice experience doing it because I got to experiment with, say, action sequences or horror or, you know, lots of different things. I got to include some of the guys in my sketches. And yeah, I, I it was yeah a lot of fun to do and I learned loads from it. Instagram star, comedian and now TV actor and singer Michael Fry talking to Brendan Courtney on this morning's Ryan Turberty Show. Dundeal have released a report that shows second-hand car prices have risen by a frankly staggering 67% since 2020. Motoring journalist Bob Flavin joined Claire Byrne this morning to talk about the state of the Irish car market and Claire started by asking him why we're seeing this startling rise in second-hand values. 
years of strangulation supply. So to make a secondhand market, you need a new car market. And we haven't had a new car market in a good three years now because of pandemic. We've had loads of orders, but not enough cars being supplied. Factories shut down during the, during the pandemic. Then we had a shortage supply of parts for those factories. Uh, semiconductor issues, all kinds of things when making the cars. So we haven't had enough new cars on the market to make a decent secondhand in our own territory market. And then that has happened worldwide. So the UK, where we buy almost all of our cars are imported from the UK, one or another, used cars. They've had a strangulation supply as well. So we all have a burgeoning used car market, mm-hmm. but we don't have enough cars to supply it. And the Brexit effect? Brexit effect has been pretty much in there as well. We've had this 10% import duties put in as well. There's been a NOx tax put on, but that NOx tax is actually a UK tax as well. So it's not you can't really count it in. But the cost of the cars have gone up. The, the spec of the cars has gone up as well as people want better cars. And so the spec is higher, so the costs look higher here to the individual user. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a dealership, it's a different story. You're important on bulk. You don't really, it's not really relevant as to whether you just passing on the cost to elsewhere, which is what's happening to our market, is the cars are costing more in the UK, Scotland, Northern Ireland. They're bringing them in here. And then we want them so much because our, our used car market is about eight years old. So everybody wants to change into something that's five years old. That's exactly where we want to And be. is that where the inflation is in the second-hand market? but yeah, five-year-old cars. It's in the five-year-old plus 10,000 euro market. So under that, so if it's something up around 6,000 euros, some kind of first-time buyer car, learner drivers, those kind of guys, they're not seeing quite so much of an inflation in it, but the guys that are over 10,000, especially over 20,000 where you're getting that car that's, that is uh, under five years so old. So anything from what, 2017 up? Yeah, is going to cost you. Yeah. And at the moment, some of the 2017s and 18s that are on the market and being sold to dealerships are being sold at more than being bought for. So they're able to sell them back into the market at a higher value than they bought them for four or five years ago. Well, let's take a look at an example now. Um, 2013 Audi A4 sold in July of last year for €11,224. And you'd expect that to go down, wouldn't Mm. you, in the following year. But in July of this year, so July 2022, that was selling for 12,443. Amazing uh, turn up. Uh, it's amazing for dealerships. It's also amazing for the, for the used car sellers that are selling their own car. The problem is all cars have risen at the same rate. Mm-hmm. So if you're trading your car into another car or you're selling your car in the hope of buying something else online or you, you're trying to buy it yourself, the price of that has gone up. So everything has inflated along with it. And there's so many market factors happening right now today that is really driving that market forward. Beginning of the summer, I would have predicted a drop in sales and a drop in value value of secondhand cars come October, November. And I did that on my TikTok and I did that in many places. But we've come to this point and it's actually gone the other way. It's just gone up and everything in the market. You were wrong, Bob. Yeah, I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Not afraid to admit it, thankfully. Happy to admit it. So you, you mentioned at the start there the problem with the supply of new cars. Is that anywhere close to being resolved now? Because I know a lot of the parts come from both Russia and Ukraine. So that's unlikely to be fixed anytime soon. There's tons of parts even supplied by Ukraine particularly. If you look at what a Skoda Enyaq like electric car yeah. the wiring loom is completely made in the Ukraine. They had mm-hmm. to move their factory out of the Ukraine so they produce now it's gone back into production again but it's still not enough of a supply to actually catch up on itself. The problem is you're always trying to, a, a car market never really supplies on demand so it's not supplying something that's ordered today and delivered tomorrow. That was built three or four months ago maybe even a year ago if you're getting it today and it's in stock. So when you order a brand new car and you want a special spec that's outside of what a dealership would normally hold, you're going to have a waiting list of maybe six months, maybe up to eight months trying to get that car. Uh, there's two factors behind it, particularly if it's a European car. They drive on a different side of the road. 
So they don't just suddenly one day produce right-hand drive cars for us. It goes into the system of when the UK ordered their cars. So we all the right-hand drive cars come off at the same time. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge waiting list even to start producing them in the first place. Once it's in production, you can get it pretty quick. So the four courts then are having to be filled up with used cars. Yep, that's the only way they can, they can survive at the moment. And unfortunately, for some of the main dealers out there, they can't put any brand of used car out the front. They have to put their brand of used car out the front. So it can look a little bit weird when you see it first. A lot of new cars standing there uh, with no licence plates on it but really used cars are where it's at and our strangulation supply particularly from the UK because that's where we buy almost everything apart from Japan who drive the same set of roads as us that's our two main markets to buy used cars in. Okay now let's talk about the electric car market how many of uh, those electric cars used electric cars are selling second hand now? Well we can only get 1% and the reason that is because there's no used cars in electric cars. So yeah, electric cars are around about 10, 12 years or so since Nissan Leaf came on the market here. It's about 12 years, I think, since then. But sales were very low all along. So you can't create a used car market without having enough new cars to supply it. Same in the UK. They had a problem with supply there too. We're, we're getting better. It's starting to become more. The actual use or the actual new car market this year is 14% mm-hmm. of the total sales is, is electric or battery powered. Now, that has been, again, supply issues because car companies used to make the engines for their car. So petrol and diesel engines were made in the factory. But the battery technology is not usually made by the car company. It's usually made by a secondary company like Siemens or someone else would make the batteries. So they're waiting for supply and they're supplying multiple car companies. So it's very hard to get batteries. And they're still very expensive. Really expensive. It's coming down, but the middle of the market is still sitting around uh, 50,000 to 60,000 euro for a new car. And it's only sitting there because that's where the grants cut off. Motoring journalist Bob Flavin talking to Claire Byrne this morning about the current state of the Irish car market. Dublin City Council have erected a plaque on Merrion Square to commemorate Violet Gibson, the Irish woman most famous for her attempt to assassinate Italian fascist leader Benito Mussolini. The plaque commemorates her stand against fascism as opposed to her attempt to shoot Mussolini. And on this afternoon's Liveline caller Dennis told Joe Duffy why he objects to the erection of the plaque. Dennis, do you want to lay out your stall and tell us why you object to this plaque? (laughs) I do, Joe. I want to lay out my stall. I'm looking at a photograph uh, and from the Irish Times, uh, probably on Friday last. Yeah, it was everywhere. Uh, it, it was on RTE. It was everywhere, in fairness. It was everywhere, yeah. indeed. Yeah. And I'm looking at three, what I consider very foolish-looking politicians, at the end of a rope, pulling this, unveiling this plaque. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this plaque, of course, is to glorify uh, murder or attempted murder by this uh, Violet Gibson. That's the only thing that made her famous. Her name would never be known only for it. And they are glorifying her. Uh, and I don't think that's right. And that, that, that's my stall, Joe. And what's your... Well, who was Violet Gibson? And what is... Just for people who don't know her. Mm. What's your understanding of who she was? The plaque... Uh, by the way, the plaque doesn't say Violet Gibson... In memory of Violet Gibson, the woman who tried to shoot Mussolini was born here. It says Violet Gibson, anti-fascist, was born here. Oh, well, that's a very cute ploy on their part because probably if they put the truth up, they wouldn't be allowed maybe to hang it up on the wall. Um, they're the glorifying criminality, there's no doubt about that. Now, the, the country could be pasted with uh, plaques like that if every person that shot at another or shot, shot at them or shot them dead or assassinated them had a plaque erected in their memory. Well, it does, um, it does happen. Hmm? It does happen. 
people... Well, it does, but uh, <laughs> it does, Joe. But, I mean, where would that end? I don't think uh, politicians should get involved in glorifying this type of thing. There are plenty of pe- other people deserve plaques, maybe, for good that, that they have done. But I don't rightly understand why to glorify this lady. And, and then she spent uh, most of her life, in a, as we know, in a mental institution. So she's probably deranged. Well, no doubt she was. Well, well, that's, well being in a mental institution is no guarantee that you're deranged, for a start. Secondly, the, the argument and anything I've read about um, uh, Violet Gibson and indeed um, the times that were in it, um, she, she was obviously caught on the spot. She didn't attempt to disappear. She was caught on the spot and yeah. then a deal was done between Mussolini, who was then Prime Minister of uh, uh, Italy, fast becoming a dictator. A deal was done between him and Winston Churchill to repatriate Violet to the UK, where yeah. um, apparently the deal was, uh, Churchill said, if she's repatriated, we put her in a mental asylum. Ah, uh, yeah, but there must be, there had to be a mental problem. You see, what I'd like to know is who was the paymaster, who put her up to all this? She didn't just do that of her why, own volition. Yeah, why, why do you say that? Well, I say that because uh, highly unlikely uh, in those times that, uh, you know, men usually got involved in war. Very few women. Some did, I know that. Uh, but uh, from reading up on her myself, I, I, I glean that, that uh, she was put up to it. Uh, and, if it and if it was a man, would you say, would you say he was put up to it? Well, if I had read enough about him, I might. I can't say offhand, but I have. I, I'm interested in history, and I, I do write on history. Well, whoever, uh, well, Dennis, whoever put her up to it, if if your thesis is correct, hmm. whoever put her up to her wasn't much use because he picked the worst shot in Ireland and Italy. She well, was. You never know. She was. A, from... She was a few. She was a few feet away from him, and she hmm. missed. Well, she did, I know, but you know, she could. You never know what happened when she could have taken. Well, there was a crowd. There was a crowd there, and then the crowd turned. She could have shot mm. someone in the crowd, but that would have been accidental. Um, yeah, but they still would have been dead. But the, but, but, but she could have. But she, but the crowd yeah. then turned on her, and yeah, bat her and yeah. bat her up. Yeah, they did. But I mean, nonetheless, uh, she. That's why she's famous for for trying to murder someone. And then we, we have these three politicians pulling this rope to glorify her. And well, it's just, yeah, I don't yeah, think that's yeah. right. That's Dennis telling Joe Duffy about his objections to the erection by Dublin City Council of a plaque commemorating Irish woman Violet Gibson for her anti-fascist stance, as opposed to her attempt to assassinate Benito Mussolini. The Olympic diving champion Tom Daly spent his time in lockdown wisely. He took up knitting and launched a knitwear brand. His scarves appeared at London Fashion Week and Made With Love is his new craft book. He spoke to Brendan Courtney on The Ryan Tuberty Show this morning. Listeners will remember the photographs of you by the pool knitting away during the Olympics. I mean, iconic photographs, I have to say. Were you surprised by the reaction they got? Absolutely. I mean, I've been knitting since March 2020 and it was something that I started mainly because my coach was like you need to find something where you can sit still rest and recover because you're always on the go mm-hmm. so then my husband suggested that i w- should try knitting because people on film sets sometimes knit squares while they're waiting so i started and i learned and i fell in love with knitting then i learned how to crochet then i learned how to design and 
during the Olympics, it was my way of escaping everything and being focused on being like present and in the moment and not having to think about the worries of competition and overthinking things. And then post when the Olympics happened and all of the photos came out, <laughs> people started showing an interest. And then I started made with love and, you know, selling knit kits and my designs online and now the book. It's it's a wonderful book. I, I read it last night. I devoured it. Uh, my mother actually campaigned for me to be allowed to go to home economics when I was 12 years of age and joined the girls class to learn to knit. So I love it. And also in, in, in my family being present and like how my mother stopped smoking in the 80s when she took up knitting because it's really quite a powerful thing to do, isn't it? Yes, incredibly, because, you know, for me, it's all about that mindfulness and that slowing down and meditation and also just being able to be really in the moment with what you're doing. And there's something that's there's no satisfaction better than being able to make something yourself and start from nothing and then create something essentially from a piece of long yarn Mm. and some knitting needles or a crochet hook, whatever you choose if you do both but it's there's something that's so satisfying about that and you know making it with love and then gifting it to somebody else or keeping it for yourself and it's that's the thing that i like about the yeah. designs of the book so it's got so many different things the book made with love really that's the main message you can actually take a piece of string and make it into something that's a gift that's made with love to give it's just a beautiful idea it's it's very good for your mental health but and the book takes you through all the stages of that which is it's really well done by the way I have to say the book is fantastic it's a, it's a great read and, and you start off with lovely uh, inspirational um, stories about your own life but for listeners who have no experience of the confidence with craft or confidence with crafting what are the starters projects to get them warmed up there's all kinds of starter projects in there actually so for for whatever level you are whether you've never picked up needles or a hook before in your life to somebody that's more experienced or an intermediate knitter there's all kinds of different things in there for you so there's little quick gifts that you can make whether it be tags whether it be bottle carriers to bucket hats to beginner projects starting probably from like something like a scarf to some basic jumpers in there we've also got some cardigans and all kinds of different fibers and textures and it's also about like upscaling and recycling some of the things that you've already had mm. like for example cutting up t-shirts to create your own t-shirt yarn for t-shirts that you're going to throw out so there's something in there for everyone and I think that's the beauty of it really and I love very early on okay you talk about the importance of it in the book the importance of the knitting and knitting effect on on your mental health um but and then you it, it's a you break down what different kinds of yarns, what how to identify, how to buy wool. Like it starts right at the very beginning. But I'm like you. I like to knit. I love the process of starting the process of picking the colour and buying the yarn. Do you enjoy that part of it? Yes, I absolutely love that. And the interesting thing is, because I was a lockdown knitter and I started just before lockdown, I was never actually able to go into a oh, shop, of course. look at yarn and feel it and decide which one. So it was all online. So it was kind of a little bit of stab in the dark, really. Whereas <laughs> now, I've had a bit more experience being able to go into shops, look at those fibers, look at those textures, being able to read the tension gauges, being able to decide which yarns and which colors for which projects. It, it's, and I think that's the fun and the beauty of it is that although there are recommended yarns and recommended colors, you can go crazy with it. And there's no such thing as something that's wrong because every piece that you make is going to be unique. It's going to be unique to you. And there's no, like when it's handmade, there's no two pieces the same. And I'm, going to, I'm just taking us back a little bit now to the, the effects on our mental health. And there was a lot of talk about protecting our mental health during the pandemic when you learned to knit. And you've always been very vocal about the importance of self-care, haven't you? Does crafting help? 
Oh, massively. I think the, the amazing thing about crafting is the, the fact that you can slow it way back down, go back to basics, being able to bring out that inner creativity within you and being able to just be do be able to like start something and then have something that's finished and you can kind of do whatever you want to do to it. You can adapt and change halfway through. There's, there's just something that's very mindful about it as well. And, you know, I like the side of it when I'm designing, creating things, but mm. at the same time, when you're following a pattern, it's very... It's nice to be able to be creative yet follow instructions so you know what you're doing, where you're at, what you and I think for different people there's different elements to how it like there's always something from crafting or something from those kind of creative outlets that uh people can get different things from it. And I can testify because I've seen the book um which is out this week. Um if you're an experienced knitter or crocheter, there's something in this book for you. There's ideas, um, there's developments. But if you've never done it before, it's a great way to start, isn't it? Yeah, because with all of the, the, we go through the whole basics of how to how to knit, how to cast on, how to crochet, how to what all the stitches are, all the different techniques with sewing up and seaming, and also when you're in the project, if there's something that comes up that might be difficult or new, it gives you the pages of where to go back to be able to refresh yourself on the tips and the tricks and being able to understand everything about the pattern. So yeah, it's and. Also, other bits in there about the importance of it and of mindfulness, and it's a. I mean, it's a. If you know somebody that knits or crochets, it's a. It's a great little Christmas gift, I must say. Exactly. So uh, the the when you open the book within the first sort of ten pages, there's a quote from you that literally jumps off the pages. You say, "Without knitting and crochet, I wouldn't have won a gold medal at the Tokyo Olympics." I'm not saying there was no chance, but knitting helped. That's quite the statement. Yeah, but I honestly do think that is the case because, you know, during the Olympics, it was, you know, riddled, like COVID was still a thing. We weren't allowed outside of our rooms. We had to go from the room to eat, to back again, to training. And there was so much time to overthink because we weren't allowed outside of the village. We weren't allowed to socialize. So instead of me overthinking and worrying about my competition, I was able to just dive right into my knitting and just be there and be able to escape from everything. And I think there was so much power in that of being able to just switch off from thinking about the Olympics and just be into something else. And I think, you know, everybody has the power to be able to tap into something uh, to switch off from the the stressful part of their life. Wonderful. And then to take it a step further, you say knitting and crocheting also means telling stories. What do you mean by that? There's so many different ways to tell stories with, especially for like for me, when I see a piece of knitwear now in shops, I see the stitches, I see how I try to look about how it was made. And then when you are knitting something, you know, for me, my story of when, what I was knitting at the Olympics was the Olympic cardigan that I made. Yes. And I was able to just design it as I went, be able to like figure out what I wanted to add, what I wanted to take away. And I wanted to be able to take away from those Olympics that this cardigan is something that I'm going to look back on in the future and think I made that at the Tokyo 2020 yeah, Olympics. Amazing. And, and it was it, like, so for every piece can tell a story. It can be something that's plain or it could be something that kind of really means something to you and you can do the color work or embroidery on it. There's so many different elements that you can use to, to tell a story through the things that you make. Tom Daly, Olympic diving champion and now knitter, author and fashion designer. Talking to Brendan Courtney this morning. Finally on Playback Daily, you may not be a huge fan of scary movies for one reason or another, but what about scary books? Claire Byrne spoke to Waterford librarians Tracy McEnany and Jenny Loughran this morning about some books for the spooky season that's in it for both adults and children. Are either of you into reading the scary stuff? 
Not really. Um, but because um, of doing research for yourself, Claire, <laughs> I had to read the scary books. And to tell you the truth, I used to love scary books when I was younger. I would have read um, like all the ghosts and the vampires, love mm-hmm. vampires. And, and as I was saying, Loretta Kinsler read The Exorcist when she was younger and had to keep the book outside the bedroom, wouldn't bring it into the room with her. And but I think, yeah, there's a lot yeah, of I, th- I was put them in thinking about this. I was a bit like that. And I was saying to you that I read Stephen King books when I was far too young and Edgar Allan Poe and all. I wouldn't dream of going near them now. I don't, I don't know if you notice that, that teenagers are more into this than adults. It's funny when I was thinking about today, I was thinking, about what are the first scary books we do with children, with small children? And I was thinking about something I saw before. Alfred Hitchcock was talking about peekaboo. Mm. A mother does peekaboo to a baby. And we do peekaboo with babies. And we have a lot of peekaboo books for the very young. Then I was thinking about fairy tales and I've had this experience myself. You remember fairy tales, you think, oh, they were amazing. I'm going to get a book of fairy tales. And then parents start rereading them for the first time as a parent and they're, this is horrific. <laughs> like I've read a lot of fairy tales and, I, and I, read, I read them in work for story time. I read them to my own children, but sometimes I do sanitise them. The wolf always gets away, yeah. you know, safely from the three little pigs in my house. So but yeah, and you always have different versions of Little Red Riding Hood yeah. and I'm always terrified to turn the page. How are they going to get granny out of the wolf's belly? I don't yeah. Do it nicely. And I can't touch Hansel and Gretel. I just oh, <laughs> think, you know, they just, from the start strange. of it, it's just very, very, very scary. Right. Well, <laughs> let's um, take a look now at, at what you've picked out for us. So you've been looking at books adults come back to time and again. Uh, Tracy, we'll start with Stephen King and he has a collection of four short stories. That Are you recommending this now? Yes, I am. If It Bleeds, this is a collection of four short stories. Mr. Harrington Phone is currently on Netflix. That's one of the, the stories in the book. You've got The Life of Chuck, you've got If It Bleeds and you've got The Rat. And this, Lovely. <laughs> this is, well, if you just want a little bit of a taster of Stephen King, this is for you. But... Salem's Lot is one of the most famous books. Yeah. Uh, the remake should have been out in cinemas now, but it's been pushed back until April 2023. So that means that every single person in Ireland is going to be reading The Salem's Lot again. You won't be able to keep enough copies in the library. Absolutely, of that one. yeah. So we were talking about children, um, Jenny. What do children look for in a scary book? I think children like scary stories, but as long as everyone lives happily ever after, they don't like it if the monster wins. And a lot of children now are kind of getting the Disney version of classic tales. Mm-hmm. And um, it depends on the child. Like, you know, I was, trying, I was kind of thinking as well, what age would you start? And it, each child is different. Some children can completely handle like a classic children's picture book like Owl Babies. Oh, yes. But when you think, quite dark, it's quite it? dark. Yeah. The pictures are quite dark. The illustrations are beautiful. It's Martin Waddell. He's an Irish author. But like it's three owls wake up, three baby owls and their mother is gone. And I've read that as a spooky story to children. And um, like and I know some children love the Gruffalo, mm-hmm. but they can't watch the cartoon version of it, which is an amazing version of it. And again, it's like, you know, they're going through the deep, dark wood and it's, it's a little squirrel. The music and, yeah. and then for the slightly older readers, the Winnie the Witch books are really popular. And I love, they're written by Corky Paul and they've great illustrations. I love Winnie because she's a lovely story to read to children, but it's great for the independent readers. But I think one book that every house should have for if you have a mixture of ages in your house is... Um, 
is there, there's a ghost in this house by Oliver Jeffers. And like, you know, if you have a book token, if you spare a bit of money, buy a copy of this book. It is available in the libraries, of course, but it's a beautiful illustration book. And as a little girl, she's living in a house on her own and she thinks the house is haunted, but she's never seen a ghost herself. Mm-hmm. But as you're reading the book, when you're reading it to the child, and I know we use it a lot in story time. Jess and Arkeen Library is really good for using this one in story time. When you, there's, there's little kind of see-through pages put in because it's written by Oliver Jeffers, who, of course, is an amazing children's writer and a brilliant illustrator. And she wants to know what the ghosts look like and do they only come out at night? And she'd love to know. And recently, uh, libraries all around the country have been hosting events for a children's book festival. And in Waterford Libraries, we had loads of authors, including Dave Rudden. And Dave Rudden has written a series of books called The Knights of the Borrowed Dark. And he was in the library in Carrickfirish where I worked last week and I was chatting to him and I said to him, do you set out to scare children in your books? I told him I was coming on here. And he said, I do. He said, but that's what children want and they love it. And he said, it's more of the anticipation. And even when he was talking to, I think it was 200 children at one stage, we have a massive room for events. He was saying, it's not about the jump scare. It's about the anticipation. The anticipation of the scare. So remind us now of of the name of his books again. His books are The Knights of the Borrowed Dark And and the Oliver Jeffers one? The Oliver Jeffers is called There's a Ghost in This House. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they're the two that you're recommending Mm -hmm. for children. Now, the different genres, uh, Tracy, we've got horror, crime, psychological. Your top picks for for people to, to head to here. I know Sarah Pierce has a debut novel out that you love. I love The Sanatorium. This is by Sarah Pierce, as you said. She's got a second book out now, The Retreat, and it follows Ellen Warren, the detective, in this as well. But The Sanatorium will actually give you chills because it's set in the Swiss Alps. Um, she is going up to celebrate her estranged brother's um, engagement and um, they're cut off, a storm comes, they're cut off from the civilization, and then, of course, the bodies start piling up. So um, it's just, it's actually a very, very good book. But it's, if you can think of hotels with huge, big windows, right? Mm-hmm. And Dermot Bannon style, so, gla- you know, floor to ceiling, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you're looking out and all you can see is white, the forest, the trees, uh, the uh, snow, um, n- and not any footprints in the snow, but someone is looking at you. Someone is watching. So this is like a oh, psychological I I like, thriller. I like that kind of a scare. That, oh, no. That'll do me. This That's is very good. The Sanatorium and the, the other one by Sarah Pierce is called The, the Retreat. Retreat. Just some of the scary books recommended by Waterford librarians Tracy McEnany and Jenny Loughran on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shuradon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.